Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had the conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-double-e-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 65, with the title, Self-Forgiveness is Tough. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Liz Cashin. Liz describes herself as a mental well-being speaker, author, trainer, and coach. When I asked Liz to describe her superpower, she said compassion, because she has been through so much herself and is able to have compassion for other people, their suffering, not to judge or blame them for their actions they take, but trying to understand them much better. Hello, Liz. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. I am absolutely delighted to be here as your guest today. I'm really looking forward to our chat. Yeah, me too. Me too. Liz, tell me, self-forgiveness is tough. Why do you think that? Well, where do we start? It's such a it's such a big conversation and one that really has been a life journey for me. And I think self-forgiveness is something that so many of us actually could benefit from, but perhaps haven't yet found a way or learned how to forgive ourselves. And that potentially is because we're blaming ourselves for things that have happened in our past that maybe there is no blame for. And I'm saying that I sort of hesitated because that has been my journey. I blamed myself for many, many years. I felt a lot of shame, a lot of guilt following a really horrific accident that um, I was part of at my school when I was just 13 years of age. And I took part in my school sports day as most 13-year-olds do. It's sort of that annual, that's that time of the year when, you know, people, some people look forward to it, some people dread it. But I was actually really looking forward to it because I thought I was going to win a medal. Uh, And at that point in my life, I really craved recognition. I was a child who had a difficult home background. I had a mentally and emotionally abusive stepdad at home and was constantly being put down. And so one way that I really got recognition was through sports. And so I was really looking forward to the sports day. And that was so at odds then. By the end of the day, uh, my friend was in hospital fighting for her life and I felt completely responsible for the whole thing. Um, I thrown the javelin in the javelin event and the school had put my friend out on the field, she was 13, to mark the throw. And when I threw, for some reason she was distracted, it hit her in the head. And four days later she died in hospital from her injuries. It's, 
was as horrific as it sounds. It was a very, very difficult um, time in my life and actually shaped and defined my whole life to come. I think something, you know, it was almost like my life before that day and then my life after that day. It was so defining and there was no trauma help back then you know this was the 80s people didn't even know about trauma didn't even know about mental health and so unbelievably by today's standards I didn't talk to anybody about what had happened so I was struggling with this major trauma and without anyone to process it with I just blamed myself entirely and took all that responsibility as far as I was concerned the javelin left my hand and my friend was now dead. Uh, I couldn't take in anything else because I'd been there. And as a 13 year old, as a child, we tend to blame ourselves for things anyway. And what I've learned that is in trauma, we tend to blame ourselves, whether we're a child or an adult. So, and I also had that, those seeds of beliefs that had already formed with my stepdad that there was something wrong with me. And now I just thought that I was evil and I deserve to be punished. This is what I unconsciously created. And then went on to find many different ways to punish and abuse myself over decades to come. Um, and so really, my journey has been one to find forgiveness for what happened, uh, which, as I say, has been a lifelong journey. And it was only five years ago that I was actually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. So I've been living with that for over 30 years. Um, and it was actually a relief because I'd had such mental turmoil during that time that I tried to cover up and hide and felt shame around that. I felt like, you know, I was different to everyone else, that I should be able to pull myself together, that why did I keep spiralling into this sort of place of despair? I couldn't understand it. And then suddenly there was a, a valid reason why and actually I was able to get some trauma-specific help. Um, so I know that's a sort of a big introduction to what we're talking about today, but I just really wanted to set that context really about why self-forgiveness has been my journey. I've just been sitting here listening to you and uh, I don't have a sensible to say now about that it, it's just almost unfathomable to me listening to that story and that scenario and that that random event and to be able to come up with anything meaningful to say back and, I, and I'm, I'm i've got some questions though i mean you say you you blamed yourself you saw yourself as evil and that was a self image but were there people around you who you perceived were assigning blame, were you, were you, do you feel that you were being held responsible in some way and you had to fight that? Or did you feel that people weren't absolving you enough? Or, or what was going on at the time? It's, it's a really good point. And, you know, my friend's family, my friend who died, they never once blamed me, never from the get-go. Just incredible people. And I, you know, I... I'd hate to think actually what would have happened if that had been different. So, but I couldn't understand why they were so forgiving because I was thinking, but it was my fault. You know, it didn't matter what anybody said to me. I had thrown the javelin and my friend was dead. And to me, it was as cut and dried as that as a 13 year old. I was like, but you don't understand. But I have to say as well, you know, I, 
I took my turn when I was told to. I didn't come out of the thrower's box. You know, I did exactly as I was instructed to do. Uh, and it's only many, many years later, the five years ago, in my trauma processing, that I really grasped that, that actually I had done exactly as I was instructed to do. I wasn't messing about. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything other than taking part in my school sports day event. And the school had put two 13-year-old girls out on the field to mark the most potentially dangerous event. And there was no there was no sports teachers there. There was a history teacher and an English teacher overseeing the javelin event. Uh, and, you know, in the inquest, they were asked why that was. Oh, well, that's because we did it last year. You know, there was no... There was no real grasping of the severity of the dangers that could happen. And so in the processing five years ago, I, it was a revelation to me. I felt quite emotional even thinking about it then because I suddenly had this revelation. Actually, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I didn't do anything wrong. I was just doing exactly as I was told to do. In fact, I'd had a right to be safe at school that day, as well, of course, as my friend. I had never really put myself in that equation before. I'd always thought about my friend and obviously how she'd had a right to be safe. I'd never put myself equally in that mix. And I think not having had help to process it, I was left with all that uh, trauma in my system. And I was stuck in a 13-year-old's trauma perspective because with PTSD, your mind is literally frozen in horror back where in that place so it was almost like I had to unthaw that and really look at it from an adult's perspective and really question the validity of those beliefs that I'd created um so even back at the time when you know people would say but it wasn't your fault it had nowhere to land in me I was like but you I, you weren't there. It was my fault. You know, she's dead. That's, you know, it's entirely my fault. I couldn't understand. I couldn't grasp because I was only 13. And, you know, we're trying to make sense of something that, like you say, has no sense. And I was desperately trying to find the why. Why did this happen? That's all my mind kept going. And the only why I could come up with was there must be something wrong with me. It was the only thing I could think of that made any sense. Well, it must be me then if there's no other reason why, you know, accidents happen. Well, to a 13 year old who's just been involved in something so traumatic, it's like, it was me, I was there, it's happened to me. And so therefore it must be me, there must be something wrong with me. And thank goodness we know more now, I think, that, you know, we're able to give people the right help a lot sooner so that these things really don't take hold in the way that they did for me and really, had such a destructive impact on my life uh, for so long. And, you know, the sh shame, I'm on a mission really to eradicate shame because when we really understand what people are going through, there is never any shame, you know, there's never any shame when you really understand the, the full picture. And, you know, shame, so guilt is I've done something wrong and shame is I am wrong. My identity, I am wrong. That's what shame is. And I just felt that I was evil, that I was completely wrong as a person. And that's very difficult then to to work through um, when it's your whole identity is that. Because both guilt and shame, they're not productive feelings or emotions, are they? There's no, there's no positivity that can ever come from them. 
no. you've got to get to that point where you, you realize that, that you've got to move past those in, in order to, regardless of the circumstance. And you, you can't live in that, in that time with shame and guilt. You have to move forward into what next, how do I, how do I resolve that? And that, that, that must be tricky yeah. because you said, um, that you, you kind of got a before incident and after incident and your life at that moment changed forever. So what, what sort of things happened at that time in terms of your, your involvement in sport, your, 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 your school, your friends, what, what, what was the key thing you remember about being a significantly different day, day plus one, if you like. That everybody was looking at me, but nobody was talking to me about it. That's the overriding thing. And so it just exacerbated my shame because I thought everybody knows it was in the national press. It was on the news, you know, it was on the radio. Everybody knows this thing about me and nobody was talking to me about it. I think people were too afraid to talk about it because they didn't know how to handle it. Um, But I was told at school, the teachers are keeping an eye on you, but nobody was talking to me about it. And so, you know, my friends didn't know how to talk about it. I've had, since I've started to speak publicly, I've had friends from school reappear and say, we're so sorry. You know, we we had no idea at the time. You know, we're so sorry we couldn't support you better because they were children at, at the same time. None of us really knew uh, how to handle what was going on. And I think people maybe thought if we just returned to normal, normal life, and so for everybody else, it might have appeared normal. But for me, it was like, I, I felt like a walking zombie. I suppose that's the best way to describe it. And so that's the other thing. I never felt like I was really in life after that. I felt like I was, life was here, separated from me by like a glass. I was in a glass box and life was outside of it. Uh, and I would just pretend to be living but actually inside felt felt anything but you know I felt dead inside I think that's that's what happened it was like part of me died that day and I just tried as best I could to try and pretend I was okay uh because that's what I had to do because there was no other option I think there was no other option apart from I do you know I look back and I think how incredibly strong I was you know and part of my sort of journey of recovery has been acknowledging that 13 year old part of me and everything that she went through and actually she did keep going even though it you know with very destructive consequences for me as a person but she did find a way she was resilient she found a way to get up every day and keep keep going um and of course my home life was still very difficult very challenging um to the point where actually left home when I was 17 and lived uh, in a council flat while I did my exams. And again, I think, gosh, you know, to find the strength for that when I still was holding all the trauma as well as all the stuff with my stepdad. And yet I found the strength to leave that toxic environment and make a stand for myself. Um, And yeah, so there's always been this this strength inside, and I think you know, if it's in me, it's in it's in everyone. I think, and and we don't know we have it until we have to draw on it. Um, and I think I was just thrust into that position and and managed to find it. But I know it's it's not as easy as that. And I know you know sometimes in my life I haven't felt it, and you know I haven't wanted to 
haven't wanted to be alive at some some points in my life because the pain can be so overwhelming and so consuming it's very difficult to find any strength in that but even in those moments I just try to hang on to this too will pass you know those just a glimmer of hope uh unfortunately that's that has always got me through somehow so in so it took I think you said it took 30 years of living with PTSD to finally explore what had gone on so in that 30 years did you kind of own this label of kind of killer or murderer or whatever whatever strong words you want to do and the shame the guilt you had did you almost like self-identify as that and then people around you people maybe could try to get close to you you felt the need to bring it out and put it on the table in front of you and, and own that and apologize for it all the time or was it something you kept secret it it's a really good question it was actually a mixture of those things i think sometimes i just didn't want anyone to know um i was terrified that people would find out because yeah i did definitely own that label uh of murderer uh, it's hard for me to even, you know, think about that now, but that that definitely was what was happening. But sometimes, yeah, if people would get close to me, then I would open up to them. But it was, yeah, I was always terrified then that I'd be rejected uh, for it, which I never was. But it was that, you know, that self-rejection that I was holding inside. So I've never let anybody get really close to me. Um, I've always sort of um, held relationships close, but not too close hmm. I think and that's the some of that is mixed up with my stepdad as well you know there's 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 trauma major trauma that I went through and also relational trauma and you know that is still a form of trauma and I think so many of us have experienced trauma in many different ways and I'm really glad that that conversation is opening up now about actually what is trauma and all the different elements of that so um I also had the relational trauma aspect. So I found it very difficult to let anybody in uh, to get anywhere really close to me. Hmm. So what was the, what was the, the epiphany or the trigger moment you went, I need, I need to deal with this. What got you to that point where you asked for help hmm. or yeah, that, because that, that's what we're talking about here is in terms of PTSD mental health, we want people to come away from this with that first step how did you get to that first step I had gone for help over the years but was misdiagnosed with depression um and so that didn't really get to what was really going on for me um but I would say if anyone else is going through something similar don't give up keep going back you know keep going back to to ask for help again even if you don't feel like you've made progress so far because I think that's the thing. Sometimes doctors don't diagnose in the correct way and then we can't get the right treatment. So just be aware of that, that it took me a few times in order to get the right help. But I think the main thing was when I started to speak about it, and I know we've met through the Professional Speaking Association, and I really felt like I wanted to share my story because there's so many people struggling with their mental health and you know, we need more people to talk about it and to normalize it and destigmatize it. And so I felt a calling to do that. But what happened was I entered a speaking competition um, thinking it was just five minutes to share my story. 
And that was a huge step for me. And what I hadn't realized, anticipated was that I'd win that round of the speaking competition, um, which was incredible. But then I had to go to the national semifinals and then the finals. And this was a massive thing for me, who'd just taken the courage to sort of speak for five minutes. And then suddenly it was, you know, I was being called to really step up. And what, because I was sharing my story and I really, and the really sort of pivotal moment of the story again and again and again, it was sort of re-triggering me, re-triggering me uh, all the time. And so and that, around the same time, somebody said, oh, have you read the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk? So that's Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score, just a seminal book on trauma. Um, I highly recommend. And I read the first chapter about a soldier who had PTSD and I cried. I, I thought I felt so seen. I thought, oh, my goodness, this is me. You know, this is. The way he was talking about, he talked about being in a glass box and the disconnection and the, the flashbacks and the nightmares, all of this stuff. And I was like, this is what I've been struggling with. And so I went back to my GP, which was a, a new GP, and asked him, could I have an assessment for PTSD? And he, a beautiful moment for me, but he apologized on behalf of the medical profession and said, I'm so sorry, nobody has thought thought to send you for this before. And actually that meant a lot to me. I know he wasn't responsible for the rest of the medical profession, but again, it was that compassion really, that understanding of, oh my goodness, you've lived with this for such a long time. I'm so sorry nobody else has spotted it or been able to guide you to the right help. Um, so it was because I felt that constant re-traumatization, that's what led me. I thought, I can't keep sharing my story and feeling this level of pain. That's not that's not why I'm doing it. You know, I'm doing it hopefully to give hope to other people, not to keep hurting myself. Um, and so that's that was really the the trigger that made the difference. They, they do say in our speaking profession that you speak from the scar, not from the wound, isn't it? Sort of. So yeah. we have to heal first before we, sh- we, we were able to tell our story in a an objective way. Otherwise, we're always reliving our trauma. And that, that's sometimes yeah. a mistake people make, isn't it? And it uh, and I, I, I and I completely agree with that. And I think but in that competition, I spoke from my wound because I didn't realise the wound was there. So, you know, I sort of did it unwittingly and it led me to the right help. So for me, in a much bigger picture, it's it was really a really good step, even though it was very painful in my healing journey. But I and I absolutely agree. You know, I needed to get that help uh, so that I can now speak and not be. So I'm speaking now from the scar rather than from the wound. But initially, I didn't even know that that wound was mm. there and what it was. Um, when you said you, you saw your 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 new GP and he, it, I think you said it was a he. Immediately hey, yeah. reacted and uh, and and stepped up. I, I've been there, and it's so validating mm. to have someone go, "I hear you. Let me do something. Let me work with you." A medical professional going, "I've got this." Uh, and I remember with my GP having a conversation about something completely different in a similar sort of way, and just that validation that take the time, let's, let's deal with this. I'm here for you. What can I do to help? Let me engage services and make sure this works for you. That is so powerful that someone, that one person takes that time to just be there and help and listen. So that must have been an incredible feeling. 
It was. And I think that's something to share, isn't it, with people that, you know, sometimes other people might be struggling in our lives and we think we've got to know all this stuff. But actually, just to say, I'm so sorry, you know, I really hear you, how difficult Mm -hmm. it is. You know, I see you. Just that, like you say, is incredibly validating um, and can make a huge difference. You know, we don't have to make it right. We don't have to fix it. In fact, we can't. We're not medical professionals, most of us. But we can, and this is why I said at the beginning, you know, about my compassion is my superpower, I think, because we're so quick to judge other people or label them or make assumptions about people. And if we can just sort of sit with them, be with them and say, I see you, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, that sounds really tough. That can be huge for that person. And like you say, for you and I have had, a similar experience and actually at school when I was in my uh upper sixth what as it was then I was trying to think year 13 as it is now and I lived in this council flat and so you know I was having to take care of myself uh, on top of everything else but I remember this one teacher Mrs Nicholson and she was my form teacher then and sometimes I would be late for school sometimes I wouldn't turn up to school and she was such, she would always have a word with me. How are you? She'd just check in. How are you doing? And don't worry, I've marked you into school. Or, you know, she was just so kind. She didn't really do anything except show me that kindness. And for me, in all a sea of sort of craziness at that time and feeling so rejected by so many people, to have this one person who was saying, I, I'm looking out for you. I'm just checking you're okay was huge for me at that point as well so it's those those kind Mm. moments throughout our lives I think can make such a difference and we can be that for somebody else yeah I I I find when I I I do a lot of uh corporate lunch and learn type talking and part of my my talk is always a a 20 minute Q&A afterwards you know and ask me anything kind of session and very regularly I get asked if someone's facing bullying, discrimination, being disrespected, whatever it may be in workplace or society, what's my bit of advice? And I always start off by saying, remember, there's always someone who will listen. It's really important to realize you're not alone. And it may seem the hardest thing in the world to open up. But you find somebody, whether it's Samaritans, whether it's your best friend, whether it's a colleague, whether it's someone in a coffee shop, whatever it may be, a stranger, there is always someone who will listen to you. And once you've been listened to, you you share that the problem doesn't become so internalized. You're you're able to sort of maybe actually just the act of speaking out loud sometimes allows you to offload that that mental block. And I always think that's the most powerful thing is just realizing that no matter what happens, there's always someone who will listen. They may not be able to fix you as you as you pointed out there. You don't need fixing. Actually, I can fix myself if I'm allowed to explore my thoughts out loud and. I think you said you're a coach, and that's part of the secret of coaching, isn't it? Not to fix someone's problem, but to help that person unlock and explore themselves. So, yeah. It's so true. And I think that listening thing is so key. It's part of what I teach in in the programs is is such a key part, that non-judgmental listening. And actually, our minds judge. That's what they do. But it's about, you know, understanding that, parking it, and just keep showing up. And that's a skill that we can develop. And actually, it's hard for for some of us, I put myself in this category because we may have tried to talk to our family, 
but the family is so loaded with all of their stuff as well. So you try and tell your story and then they say, well, no, it wasn't like that. Or, well, no, you know, blah, blah. And try and sort of say that your your perspective isn't right or your story isn't true. Or When actually everybody's story is right and true for them. You know, the truth is somewhere in the middle of it all, of course. But to actually hear somebody's truth, somebody's perspective, and just allow that, give that space, whether you agree with it or not is is something else. But to just allow it and to validate that yeah. that is that that is true for them, then that's victim explaining almost whatever the equivalent is. It's yeah. kind of saying it's almost saying this you're wrong, and that's not going to yeah. fix anybody. No, it, and I've had people it's, say it's that. It's about internalise, it's feeling. How do you feel? It's not going yeah. out with your right or wrong or logic. It's feeling, yeah. isn't it? It is. It is. And I've had people say that to me in my in my life. You know, that isn't what happened. That's not true. And it is true for me. That is exactly what happened. That is my experience. But we're so quick sometimes to deny other people's experiences. This could be in the workplace mm. as well. No, that's not true. Well, actually give space. For, you don't have to agree with it, but just give space for other people's opinions and realize it is true for that person rather than saying it's not because then you've got a fight going on if you you know if someone says to you it's your truth and they say it's not it's not you're going to want to defend yourself aren't you it is true it is true for me no it's not it is it is and so it's this losing battle whereas you can just say oh I really hear that that's your perspective I really hear that that's your truth tell me more about that tell me why you believe that. that Tell me more about it. Keep talking. Yeah, that's Keep wow. Talking. I never thought that. Yeah. What gave you that perspective, or why yes. did you think that? All those kind of things. Yeah. Isn't it? Curiosity is. Key. I love that. I, you know, I bring mm. that into my all my trainings. I'd be curious rather than judgmental. Be curious mm. because we don't know. We think we know, but actually, when we think we know, we're not listening, and then we miss vital information. Um, so we want to jump so- to the fix, don't we? We do. If, I, if, you, if you tell me your problem, I tell you you're wrong, and now you're fixed. Yeah, you see it through my perspective, and suddenly your your trauma will go away. And that's not the way trauma works, is it? It's not linear or logical. No, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I know, and it can just take us by surprise as well. Like you know, like I was saying when I started to speak about my story, and then suddenly I was in this all this trauma again because I tried to put a lid on it so tightly, I wasn't expecting it to erupt like it did because I didn't appreciate how much I was sitting on so it can just take us by by surprise as well um and I'm mindful as well of the original the opening statement about self-forgiveness and I just thought I might bring that back in again now we've sort of explored a little bit more because when I had my trauma cognitive behavioral therapy, so that's specifically for PTSD around a, a trauma, um, and we started to unpick all those negative beliefs about being evil and and all of that. And I I thought my journey was self forgiveness. I thought that's what I needed to do. And then realizing that actually I hadn't done anything wrong, that I'd done exactly I was, I was just following a teacher's instructions I did nothing wrong on that level it was like and then I realized how much pain and suffering I had created towards myself as a result of believing that I'd done something wrong that's what really got me up oh, oh, 
the pain and suffering that I had caused myself because I had rejected myself for something that I had not done wrong in the first place. It was, and I think that's really my heart sort of cracked open then to self-compassion. It was more, and compassion means to suffer with. And I suddenly was like with this 13-year-old, like, I am so sorry for everything now that I've done to you as a result of believing that there was something wrong with you, believing that you were evil. You know, all of this, it's heartbreaking really when I think about it. And it's about me, you know, when I think about all that abuse I gave myself and punished, you know, I took a lot of drugs in my 20s. I was in very destructive relationships. Uh, I've always used food as a way to beat myself up. Every time I eat something, there's an internal dialogue, you know, going on that's really negative. So all of this I'd done to myself. That was the hardest thing that I had to face. Um, and so the self-forgiveness was tough, that whole journey. And actually then realizing it developed into self-compassion when I really understood I was just a actually innocent 13-year-old going to school, having a right to be safe and doing what she was told to do. And without the right help and support as a result of that, had created all of this negative narrative and destructive beliefs and abuse and punishment you know that that is the toughest thing I've had to face as you're talking there my mind is is tumbling around inside going you've just switched the entire perspective of the episode title on me I thought you had to forgive yourself for the event and you what you realized was you there's nothing to forgive that's the first thing I just picked up from that. What you had to forgive yourself is the shame, the guilt, or yes. the, the internal trauma, the self-imposed exile yes. in your life. Yes, yeah. That's what you had, to, you, had to, you had to apologize to yourself for believing it was your fault. All those kind of emotions going on. So self-forgiveness is tough. It's, it's actually forgiving yourself for all that internalization. You're yeah. not. You weren't to blame. There's no guilt. There's no shame. You, you you were a victim in your own right as well, and you're not victim owning you're not owning that but a victim. You're you're just apologise to yourself for for not seeing clearly earlier, and that that's yeah. that is wow, yeah, that is woof. yeah yeah, slam dunk punchline right in the middle. Slam of the dunk, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Um, there's actually uh, a BBC Ideas short video on self forgiveness that I'm in. It's coming out uh, soon. We'll, we'll be out when this. A podcast comes out and that's exactly what we explore within that actually coming around to realize that it was the things I'd done to myself that have created the, the need to forgive myself yeah and that's am tough I, am I right that thinking that the PTSD will never go away it, it just becomes manageable submerged uh, an echo it becomes fainter it becomes less of a part of your life but something that is still with you for well will be with you for a long time just maybe not consciously all the time some people completely recover it's very it's so broad it's like it depends i and and it i was gonna say it depends how long you've had it but i don't think that's even true i think it's so individual what happens but I was told by the um, lady I did the uh, trauma CBT she said I may always have it because I had it for so long 
and because it happened at such a key time in my brain's development. So 13 is that really key time when so many things in the brain. And she said, you know, my brain will have developed in a different way to other people as a result of holding the trauma. And so, yeah, it is, it, it's difficult. But And, you know, I do have episodes where I, str- I struggle, you know, I really, um, yeah, where I really struggle still. And I've got so many tools uh, that I use. I have awareness, so I don't beat myself up if I'm struggling. I just bring kindness and compassion to myself and reach out for professional support if I need it, uh, talk to people, or do I need to take a break? You know, all of these things I know now to do, whereas in the past, I would just beat myself up for feeling bad and that would just spiral into, you know, something else and make it all a lot worse. So five years on, approximately yes since you yes. had this epiphany that it nothing was ever your fault and that you were blaming yourself unnecessarily and this ptsd you, you you worked through with some as you say some cbt and some coping mechanisms and some healing mechanisms how did you get into what you're doing now then had it was that just a natural evolution or you it was a conscious decision i'm going to be a, i'm going to help other people was it what, what was the spark i yeah, it felt like a calling. Some people might not understand that. But for me, it just felt like I'd been through so much in this life that and, you know, as you we talked about in the beginning, it, it's senseless. What I went through really was senseless. But it, there is some good that can come out of it. This is this was my sort of calling, I suppose, was, you know, I don't want anyone else to have to go through what I went through and struggle like I did and and feel that shame in silence because they're too afraid to speak up for what you know the consequences might be to that. So I really felt like I wanted to share my story more publicly so that other people would hear me and think oh you know that's me or I've been going through that or I recognize myself there or if it's somebody in the family or and and actually hopefully encourage people to get help to get the right help and to get it sooner um and to know there is no shame around that so I think it was it was that I felt this uh real motivation to write a book about my story so that was part of it and then it was really interesting because I wrote a lot of it and it's called this is me so I wrote a lot of the book um and then it was like I I couldn't work out how to finish the ending this was about 10 years ago I wrote a lot of it and so then I just left it and then when I got the PTSD diagnosis I thought oh this is why I couldn't finish the book (laughs) because actually the story you know this is a key part and so I went back and completed it with the PTSD uh lens and of course that everything then made a lot more sense um and and I think this is it, you know, there's so much work people do around mindset. And we, you know, I, I teach mental health awareness and first aid for mental health, you know, all those trainings I deliver. And there's an evolution of that, which is about trauma. And it's an ever evolving conversation. And as it evolves professionally, I'm also evolving personally. So it gives me extra insight. Um, you know, trauma is in the body. So we, it's great to do, and it's fantastic to do all the mental health awareness stuff because it's it's a good stepping stone. We all need to be aware. But I just want to also let people know if you're trying to work on your mindset and that isn't working, you're still feeling bad. You may have trauma 
And trauma is also in the body. It's in our nervous systems. And unless we know this and we help ourselves to, with with that specifically as well, we're all we're still going to hold it in our body, and therefore we're never going to fully feel right. And if you're anything like me, you'll just use that then as a, something to beat yourself up about. Because I kept thinking, why am I not feeling better? Why do I keep spiraling? Because trauma is held in our mind and body, um, and so we need to understand that more. And so that's something now more passionate again about raising awareness and taking more trainings into the corporate space so people can become trauma-informed in organisations. So, so this occurred 30, 35 years ago, and as you said yourself, there was very little awareness of, of broken mental health, yeah. uh, of trauma, PTSD. These kind of words just, just weren't in the vocabulary in the 80s, were they? No. So the, the world's moved on. You said the world moved mm. on uh, five years ago. So where are, where we are today where do people go? And, I, and I, 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 I'm sure but when you're internalizing shame and guilt or all the other things yeah. going on in your life, speaking those words out loud is one of the biggest fears we must have, a bit of being further judged or having yes. our shame reinforced. How yes. Do, how do people step, step over that, that step, if you like? Yeah, and I'd say be gentle with yourself, um, definitely. And as we've talked about, you know, it has to be a safe space, you know, because you quite rightly say if you then go and talk to someone who is judgmental, who doesn't understand, it might be in your family, it might be someone else. And then your the reaction then is a, is a negative one or pull yourself together, or, you know, very unhelpful things that people say with good intent. Um, it can create more harm. So I would say. If in the workplace you have your mental health first aiders, you know, that is a confidential peer support. You could go and have a chat with them. If you get on well with your manager, for example, at work and you find think they are kind and compassionate or a colleague, I think that kind and compassionate, if you know anybody that you feel has those qualities, that is a good place to start to speak. If you don't have anyone in your life like that, and if you don't, I'm really, really sorry about that because I think everybody deserves to have people like that in your life. Um, then, you know, you can go and talk to your GP. As I said, I've had different experiences with GP. So if you don't at first get a kind response, maybe talk to a different GP, but don't give up. That's the one thing I would say. Keep going. You know, it's taken me a few tries over the years. Um, and it takes courage. As you say, it can take real courage to talk about these things. We've held so much shame and guilt around for so long, but you are worth it. You know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. If you can take anything from my story, it's don't give up. Keep going till you get the right help and the right diagnosis and the right treatment. But just have the courage to to speak up um, to somebody. You know, if you want to message me, if you want to chat to me please do that uh, if you want me to be a first step for you. You can also, um, in your local area, there's IAPT, uh, Improving Access to Psychological Therapies, where you can just go without a referral from your GP and talk to somebody there. Um, so there's, there are different ways. There are private therapists that you can pay if you can afford that. So MIND is a, is a good uh, MIND, the mental health charity. So there are mental health charities that also have helplines I would say try something and hopefully if it works, then, you know, carry on with that. If it doesn't, try something else, but just keep trying because 
living with shame, living with mental turmoil. That is that is the shame. It's like me with the self-forgiveness. The real shame around that is that I blamed myself for so long. It's not shame associated with the actual accident itself. So if you are struggling with your mental health, get help because the sooner you can get help, the better for you, the better for you to realize there is nothing to be ashamed of, that you know there is nothing wrong with you. If you're struggling, there is nothing wrong with you. You are a human being. We all have a gamut of emotions. We fluctuate with our mental health. Some of us will have mental illness all our lives. Some of us will have episodes. Some of us will have poor mental health sometimes, but we're all like that. We're all human. We've got to really destigmatize this conversation so that it's normal to talk about it if we're struggling because we all struggle sometimes that's the thing i used to think everyone else had it sorted except me and now i realize that's couldn't be further from the truth i think most people struggle or are struggling especially through the last few years um hasn't escaped many of us i don't think so just know that that you are not alone you are not the only one and there is nothing to be ashamed of one of the uh some of the positives out of the COVID era um, has been this awareness of well-being, mental health, um, because we, you know we're all in the, a different boat, same river sort of thing. Managers, leaders, we're all in experiencing the same trauma as everybody else in different ways. So for the first time in our society, we've been all been knocked and rocked by a similar traumatic event. And I think there's been a, a huge, great awareness. And I, I look at some of the companies have done some fantastic stuff over the last few years. And well-being, employee well-being, mental health first aid, signposting, check-ins, how are you? It's okay not to be okay. We're now talking about this in the workplace more than we ever did. And I think there's a lot more signposting. Employee assistance programs are now not seen as a, a shameful kind of, I'm, I don't need that, I don't need help. And um, we're starting to talk about male suicide, which is still uh, the biggest killer of men under the age of 50, I believe, or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, people know it's okay not to be okay, and it's okay to cry. It's okay to not know. And, and that's the message we want to try and get across to people, isn't it? It, it really is. And, you know, that, that statistic shocks me every time I hear it, even though I say it a lot, you know, that suicide is the biggest killer in men under 50. But when I was growing up, the culture was big boys don't cry, uh, man up you know, your wuss, you know, all of these really derogatory terms. And so we sort of trained men not to show their emotions. And now we expect them to be emotionally literate as adults. Um, and, you know, there's a, how much shame that so many men are holding, and it's a weakness perceived, you know, they've got to overcome all of that. And um, I can't even imagine how difficult a hurdle that is as well, as well as just, you know, feeling the mental health issue in itself. And so, but the more conversations we have, and actually I'll just share this. It was quite profound for me. I, I did a mental health awareness training on a building site and it was men at the end of a day. It was a hot summer's day. We were in a porter cabin. They just wanted to go home. I thought, oh my gosh, tough, tough crowd. You know, I walked in and they said, we want to go home. And I was like, oh, okay. Two of them were on the floor. There wasn't enough chairs, you know. So I thought, okay, just keep it upbeat. Uh, you know, get through it and then they can go. And some of them, English wasn't first language. So there was some side chats as I was talking. And I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, they just, they just hate it. They can't wait to go. And then feedback form at the end, they all diligently filled them out. And then they, they left and they were in better moods, thankfully, by the time they left. 
And then I started reading these. For, I actually I was very emotional. Um, they'd all given it 10 out of 10, really said how much it was needed, how much it had helped them. But one of them just said, uh, trainings like this can help men like me not to suffer in silence. And I thought it really changed something for me. You know, this was a few years ago when I just first started delivering these trainings. Uh, not to assume or you know they still had to carry on the bravado to each other and oh yeah yeah want to go home but actually they they soaked it all in they took it all in they really needed it they appreciated it and you know that statement I just thought oh my goodness you know they of course they need the support and of course they want it you know nobody wants to struggle and suffer in silence so that was a real motivating driver for me at that point as well and never to make those kind of assumptions but also how hard it is for men because they felt that they couldn't say that in the group that they had to keep you know the bravado up during the session in the last uh, five years i think i i know two men who've taken their life hmm. um one recently uh, a childhood uh, school friend no one knows why Absolutely no one knows why. At the age of 58, his wife came home and found him uh, hung, hanged himself oh. in the back garden on the, on a pergola in Australia. Oh. No notes, no nothing. Happy, in love, family, massive, everything going. No note, nothing. And uh, another more distant friend uh, about five years ago, was going through some trauma in financially in his business. Um, he couldn't pay the wages. He had the bank foreclosing on him, all this pressure. And he just turned up at the office on a Monday morning, got in there early and hanged himself in his office. Oh. And there was and found by his PA or office manager. Oh. And the sad thing about that, that last story is that all of the problems that were going on in that business at the time, the financial troubles, the people who were rallied around to support his wife fixed them all in a few days. Phone call to the bank, phone call, conversation with the staff, phone call to suppliers. Everybody was put on hold. Everybody had a conversation. Everybody gave time. And you think all that, all that friend needed to do was to say, help, help. The same people who end up helping after they took their life could have helped beforehand. And that's that's what shame does, isn't it? That's what shame does, that fear of being judged, that fear of being weak. And one thing I've learned over the last five years since I gender transitioned is that weakness is not is actually a strength. Being vulnerable is a strength. Saying I can't or I need help is a strength. And I think and I'm, I'm, I'm getting quite emotional. I'm almost quite tearful now talking about this. That that's what we need to educate our, our young yeah, adults, our children, that we don't need to be unwavering. We need to be able to bend and flex and and deal with our emotions. I I hear you. I hear you. Vulnerability is is such a strength, and that can change the world actually. And I think it's these conversations normalizing the fact that we all struggle from time to time, you know, we, we're all human, we're all human beings, we all make mistakes sometimes, it's like, we're in this perfectionist society, you know, all these images that get photoshopped, and we're all going for some perfectionist ideal that's an illusion anyway, you know, all of this is saying, like, 
we're not okay as we are. We have to be this other thing. And I think this is the journey is accepting ourselves exactly as we are, warts and all. You know, we all have everything. We're all human beings. We mess up sometimes. We get it right sometimes. But let's stop judging ourselves. Let's stop criticizing each other. Let's stop blaming each other. Let's have some understanding, some kindness, some acceptance. And then we've got a real chance of these statistics, the dial changing massively because we all realize, oh, actually, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm human. I'm just going through a really difficult patch. I need some help. Let me ask someone for help. Help is here. You know, we can do that. We can be that society. But we all have to make that personal change. And I think that is really one of the beautiful things to come out of my sort of horrific journey, I think, is it's made me a better human being at the end of it because I, you know, really don't judge other people. I I may get angry sometimes, but I think I don't know their story. You know, I'm able to drop that judgment. Um, and, you know, we all get triggered. We've got this, we've all got this stuff going on inside. We get triggered by each other. Unless we become aware of that and own it, we're just going to keep projecting our stuff onto other people and blaming them for it. I know this happens a lot in offices, particularly in the manager uh, dynamic. You know, that can be a lot of those triggers and projections going on. But again, it's just become aware of that. Have some training, get some more awareness and how to have those conversations and how to be a more compassionate leader. Um, all of these things are available to us. So you can see I'm passionate about it. Mm. Um, but I think because otherwise we're just going to keep having wars internally and externally. We're just going to keep perpetuating uh, this feeling of not enough, this shame, the guilt that so many of us are carrying around. And it's totally unnecessary. Mm, but we, we both know that by sitting and having this conversation, just saying to people, ask for help, speak about it, we know that that is a massive barrier. We know that just by saying it isn't going to make someone do it. So no. what I would always want to encourage people to do is if you are a leader, you are a manager, you're a friend, whatever it may be, give people the time to be heard, to listen to people. They may not, they may not say they're broken. They may not say they've got some issues, but that you may be able to detect a, an element where they, they, they need some help and then just give them more time and say, how are you? Are you okay? Are you really okay? Do you want to get a coffee? Do you want to sit down and talk about it? Do you anything I could do to help? Can I, can I, can I make a problem go away for you? Can I solve yeah. an unsolvable problem? And just yeah. not trying to fix them, but about listening, about allowing someone to just unpack it. And yeah. that's what I think leaders need to do in organizations is, is make sure you give people time and say, how's it going? Are you okay? Anything you want to just share? Just, but being a bit, but not in a, uh, a, a leader employee sort of way in a kind of a, a, a friend, a buddy, a mentoring sort of way. And that, that's the challenge because the power dynamic can, can stop people opening up as well, can't it? Absolutely. And I know sometimes as well, the challenges, a manager will say, how are you? You know, how are you really? And the person will say, no, I'm fine. Even if it's apparent, they're not. So I always encourage managers to say, oh, that's great. But just know I'm always here if you do want to chat. And never to take it personally, because we don't know what's going on for that person, what they've got going on in their lives, how terrified they are about speaking. But we might have planted a seed by saying, how are you really? They might come back to us. They might go to someone else, but just sort of leaving that door open. And also, I think it's so important that we also find a way to give leaders that space so that they can talk about 
their challenges, mm. their mental health issues, because they're holding so much. And then they're, you know, they're holding the team and having these great check-ins. But if they're really struggling, then, you know, that is going to translate into the team mm. also. So it's so important that we find ways to support leaders and managers and give them the space to be able to talk about their challenges too. Yeah, I, I think we both probably refer to that as emotional intelligence, isn't it? It's about yeah. understanding yourself, your regulation, your compassion, your empathy, building yeah. relationships, picking up on body language cues, all those kind of things. And that we don't often promote leaders based on those those emotional intelligence skills. We, and, and I think that's the next generation leader. We, we need to breed and train and create leaders who are who are in touch with their feelings in touch with others not just great technicians or or got a big stick and shout loud that's not that's not the kind of leader we need now we need nurturers and coaches and mentors in our leaders who can pick up on this body language cues definitely and of course you know leaders managers they're coming from their own backgrounds if we're not taught about this stuff in school you know it's it's all we're all got it all back to front but how to create you know empowering relationships how to really listen uh, what can we say? I mean, the specific ways we can, you know, you and I know if you ask closed questions, you're going to get closed answers and it's going to be very stilted, you know, even simple things like that. But how to hold a space, a non-judgmental space, what questions can you ask someone? This is often why people don't want to feel like they're being intrusive about someone's mental health. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to, um, they don't know what is the right thing to say. You know, these are all the fears that mm. managers often tell me when I'm delivering the trainings. And so it stops them from saying anything because they're so terrified they're going to get it wrong and make make the relationship worse. But there's some really simple things that actually, you know, can make it so much better and actually taking the lead of the person who's talking, giving them some space to talk, all those simple things, but can make a profound difference in those relationships. So um, it can be taught. <laughs> so if you're a manager, leader who is struggling, uh, just know that, you know, there are ways that you can develop those skills. Um, and it, it actually it won't take too much uh, to do that. No, it not only can it be taught, it, all, it can also be learned. It can be learned, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I started this podcast off, as, as I showed you, with a blank sheet of paper. And <laughs> I, I had heard some of your story before. We've had conversations in the past. But I was Im immensely conscious of the fact that I didn't want to open a wound, open, push you into a place where we, 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 there's some trauma came out. So I was being very active in my listening and my emotional intelligence, trying to judge whether the conversation we were having was was a good conversation going in the right place what the questions that are popping into my head i realized they were for my own morbid curiosity that they weren't for your benefit they were for my benefit i thought hang on a minute no i don't need to go there that's not relevant to your story it's relevant to my my morbid curiosity here so i i was consciously thinking about what is a good question what is a good train of thought what isn't appropriate to go into what may open a wound and i think if we all have that when we're having these conversations it's, it's about mm. not being selfish with your curiosity, isn't it? I don't need to know. I want to, I want to help you explore what you're thinking, not what I want to know. That is so powerful. And I think, again, if we're normalising that, we've all got a morbid curiosity. So don't beat yourself up. You know, if you find someone is talking to you and you do, you think, oh, because, you know, we watch the news. It's all morbid curiosity, isn't it? We're telling us all these things. It's how we've, everything is sensationalised. Uh, so much of the time so just notice that if it is happening like you did so so beautifully and then think okay what yeah what is going to be the best 
thing to help this person. And so asking the person, so what do you need? Um, how do you feel about that? What is a good next step that you can take here? How can I support you here? What do you need from me? You know, it's all about the other person. Uh, and that was so beautifully put by you, Joe. Uh, and it's so it's so important. But just to know that that is exactly what will happen. We'll want to know, like, oh, tell me more about that, because that's you know that's the way we've been conditioned, really. Um, but that's okay. You just notice that mm. and then come back to the other person and focus on them and what how you can help them. Fantastic. Um, well, we're up to the hour. I mean, we spent 15, 20 minutes in the green room beforehand. Uh, <laughs> I could talk to you all day and I've got lots of morbid curiosity in my head that I need to, I need to go and box off somewhere, but no, it's been absolutely amazing. We've got some great takeaways there for, for leaders of managing business. And if you're listening and you are going through any sort of trauma yourself, then we're sending out virtual hugs and, and vibes to your way. Yeah. There's always someone out there who's listening. List, um, how do people get hold of you? T- tell us about your book. Tell us about your website. Tell us about your coaching programs. Uh, it, I've got an unusual name, which goes in my favor. So all of the domains are easy to find me. So it's Liz, L-I-S, slightly unusual, LizCashin.com. Uh, all of the uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all the usuals is at Liz Cashin. So really easy to find me. My book is uh, available on Amazon, Goodreads. It's called This Is Me, My Journey to Mental Wellbeing. Um, won an award when it first came out. And it really outlines my journey right from a child and how I created those destructive beliefs about myself, how I interpreted the world and made my identity. And then how, as an adult, I have recreated that recreated myself like the bionic woman <laughs> recreated that I mentally recreated my identity um and there's lots of you know really good information there that can support you if you are on your journey to mental well-being yourself there's stuff about trauma in there there's stuff about uh, mind body and spirit actually along my whole holistic journey to um to where I am today I've got a TED, TEDx talk which is mental health awakening suffering is surmountable um so again i talk about my my journey there if that's something um you want to check it out if you like it if you give it a like if you comment it's all appreciated um and as i say the bbc ideas video it's a short video on self-forgiveness um so if you've been interested in that topic today then um please follow up on that. But if you are a manager and leader, I do run lots of courses around how to have better conversations around mental well-being, mental health awareness, first aid for mental health qualification, and also becoming more trauma informed. So you can check all that on my website. Um, and I'd love to hear from you. This amazing, awesome. Thank you so much. This has been a fantastic hour. Um, yeah, thank you. And a huge thank you to you, the listener for tuning in. Uh, listen to the end please do subscribe if you're not already uh, keep updated on future episodes of the inclusion bites podcast at bites tell your friends and tell your colleagues please share i have a number of uh, also more amazing guests no they can't be more amazing i've got numbers of other <laughs> guests coming up i'm sure you'll be equally inspired by them over the next few weeks months and hopefully years and uh, remember if you'd like to be a guest yourself maybe you've got a story maybe you've got a, a passion you want to share please let me know and of course if you've got any feedback suggestions please email me at joe.lockwood at uh let me know how we can improve future shows or content you'd like to hear so my name is joe Lockwood. 
It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.